This week's TribCast is sponsored by Annette Strauss Institute for Civic Life. On May 25th, join KUT transportation reporter Nathan Bernier for a panel with Austin leaders to discuss transportation and affordability. Find out more at straussinstitute.moody.utexas.edu. And Texas Biomed pioneers and shares scientific breakthroughs that protect our communities. Health starts with science. Health starts with Texas Biomed. Visit txbiomed.org for more. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for May 20th, 2022. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News for the Texas Tribune. And this week, I am joined by politics reporter James Bettergon. Hello. Hello. And politics reporter Zach Despert. Hey, Matthew. Hey, Thank you all for joining us. It is the uh, the Friday before Election Day. Always an exciting time for the Texas Tribune and the politics team. It's a, you know, smallish, smaller election this time, uh, primary runoffs on both the Democratic and Republican side. But we've got some big ticket items, the attorney general's runoff in the Republican and Democratic area, the uh, a big congressional runoff in, in, in the Laredo area, South Texas, and uh, a pretty fun race for railroad commissioner as well. James, you have been watching this and writing about this for, for quite a bit. What what race catches your eye the most? What are you most excited to watch on Tuesday? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think the, the one I'm most interested in really is the railroad commissioner race between uh, incumbent Wayne Christian and Sarah Stogner. Um, it's it's a office that a lot of people don't know a lot about, uh, but it's this particular race is interesting because the incumbent Wayne Christian just missed out on getting out of a runoff by like two or three percentage points. Um, and that allowed his challenger, Sarah Stogner, who is a really interesting character uh, to mm-hmm. get into the runoff. Um, and she's, you know, she's an oil and gas attorney, uh, but she's also very, uh, she's very outspoken about her thinking that you know the railroad commission is basically in the pocket of industry because of the large donations that they give to the commission, and she's been very critical of, of Wayne Christian. Uh, she also caught a lot of attention for a TikTok video that she had, uh, I think, over the Super Bowl weekend, in which she was uh, nearly naked on a on a pump jack, and that got a lot of attention. Uh, but you know, previous to that, she had been talking about the issues, and people hadn't been paying attention to that. So I think that tells us more about the voters than it does <laughs> maybe about Miss Stogner. Um, but anyway, and then she just got a big donation. Uh, this this well, it was announced this week that she got a big donation. I don't know exactly when she got it of two million dollars from a rancher who's kind of got it out for the commission because she's got these abandoned oil wells on her land that have been messing up her land. And uh, she feels that they've not done anything about it. So she, Sarah Stogner got $2 million from this donor. That's allowed her to just blanket the state with uh, ads about how Wayne Christian is not doing a good job, in her opinion, and why they should vote for her. So I think that one's going to be interesting because it's a low information, low turnout election. And a situation like that, anything can happen. And that's very similar also to the Democratic AG one uh, with Mike Collier and Michelle Beckley. I think that one all bets are off and that's going to be just a, a coin toss. Uh, so we'll see about that one. And then of course the big one, I think the marquee one 
is uh, Attorney General Ken Paxton against Land Commissioner George P. Bush for the GOP nomination for Attorney General. James, I was not expecting you to go Railroad Commission first, but I completely agree. That is by far the most fascinating race in this. And I, I, you know, I'm almost like scared to say that because I feel like those who have been following the race would assume that I, I would, I or we would say that because of the TikTok video, which of course right. got a lot of attention and, you know, right. frankly kind of put Stogner on the map in a way that yeah, is, I think so. you know, sort of you know she talks about this and like you know that this was you know she needed attention for the race to talk about the issues that she had it's you know it's somewhat of a sad indictment on kind of you know the the what gets you attention in a political race and everything like that but i mean the two million dollar donation is fascinating she had basically said in a forum like not long before that political contributions she had, um, you know, she is talking, she's, she's not afraid to talk about environmental issues or the need for regulation, which is generally something that Republicans, particularly Republican primary candidates do not want to talk about. But I mean, you know, we're in a different world in the, in the Republican Party right now. And the idea of being in the pocket of big business interests could potentially be a fairly compelling um, campaign pitch these days so yeah. i am really fascinated to see how this turns out yeah and i think i think just in general i think we're in a different political world just in general too i know the other the other main thing that maybe we'll talk about a little bit is the big congressional race between henry cuellar and progressive uh, jessica cisneros and laredo that's a big matchup for the democratic party you know it's a moderate conservative democrat who's been there a long time in henry cuellar versus a progressive very liberal uh, Bernie Sanders backed Jessica Cisneros. And that is, I think, a battle for the heart and soul of the Texas Democratic Party and the overall National Democratic Party. So, I mean, we're really in a transitionary point. Well, I don't know if it's a transition, but I, yeah, we might be in a transition point. I mean, both parties are morphing into something different than what we've sort of understood them to be over the last, you know, tw 20 years, I think. Um, so it's interesting. But going back to the Sarah Stogner one, it's even more fascinating because. I think that she, I think she's like, Sarah Stogner is the donor's attorney and I think is living mm -hmm. in her big old ranch. Yeah. Um, so it's just, it's just fascinating stuff. Really encourage people yeah. to go check out that story by Patrick C. Tech. Yeah, it reminds me of the old like LBJ days where, you know, he had just like a rich financial benefactor who was like driving <laughs> his career. It's, it's obviously a different scale and everything, but it is completely fascinating. I mean, the other thing about that race is just that so few people know about the railroad commission, even what it does, you know, of course, it's the oil and gas regulator in the state. I assume a lot of the people listening to this podcast know that. But, you know, the names are not household figures. And, and in 2020, in the Republican primary, you had Ryan Sitton, the incumbent, lose to James Wright, who basically, you know, barely ran a campaign at all, had virtually no financial resources. And he... Um, you know, Ryan Sitton lost and, 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 and the, that, that kind of your name. And so, you know, say what you will about Stogner. She has gotten her name in the press quite a bit. She's, she's, um, she's generated some buzz. And I think a question could be asked is how much will that help too? And, 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 and what is often a very low information race. So um, yeah. a lot of interesting things to watch. If she were to win, that would be quite the fascinating railroad commission between uh, 
between uh, James Wright, who won in 2020, Sarah, Sarah Stogner and Christy Craddock. Yeah, yeah. And I think the, 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 thing, the, the, the James Wright like upset there is like really why people are looking at this race so much. You know, there's the old adage, you know, you, there's two ways to run a campaign. You either run unopposed or you run scared. And that's really, I think, I think for sure that's what Wayne Christian, he's looking at that other seat that got lost in the last election. And he's saying, I don't want to take any chances. He's been all over radio. He's hitting all the um, conservative groups. I think he's not going to, he's not taking any chances. So I think advantage is still to him. Um, but it'll be interesting to see on a Tuesday night uh, where we end up. I think advantage is still Wayne Christian, but uh, it'll be interesting. Yeah. I, I'm just curious to see how it shakes out. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the big things I think it's worth noting about all these primary runoff races is that it's extremely hard to take the pulse of the race. We can all kind of make our assumptions about where it's going, but polling is kind of notoriously unreliable in these runoffs because, because so few people show up and it, it really depends on who you can get to come out. Um, but let's talk about the, the headline race here, the, the attorney general race, Ken Paxton, facing off against George P. Bush, two statewide elected officials going against each other. Ken Paxton obviously facing a lot of ethical issues. Um, he has remains under indictment for securities fraud, the FBI investigation into whistleblower allegations and to whether he was using his office to benefit a donor. There um, you know, are some uh, personal kind of scandals going on that are connected to this. And, and, but he has also been a very effective legal advocate for the state of Texas, conservatives in the state of Texas looking to fight the, the Biden agenda. Going up against George P. Bush, who you had a really interesting story about his kind of dynamic, where he's really pushed to try to convince voters that he is a conservative, but that Bush in his name really proving to be kind of an albatross in this race. How do you see this race uh, in the final days? Uh, I think it's hard not to not to think that Ken Paxton is is going to win and 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 win and you know uh, pretty decisively um, just given how the runoff has shaken out. I think you know as a reporter who likes to see action and likes to see a lot of things happening and uh, really likes just the chaos kind of uh, uh, like a, a a very fruitful democratic debate and a debate of ideas. It's been sort of a letdown. You know, we were very excited uh, in early March when we knew the matchup was going to be Bush Paxton. And to be clear, it would have been interesting with any of those candidates, with mm -hmm. Eva Guzman or Louis Gomert against Paxton. Um, but, you know, Bush was saying we're going to take the fight to him. It's, you know, we're going to make sure like voters listen to our ideas. He challenged him to like 10 debates or something like that. Um, but the reality uh, of the runoff has been that that has not shaken out. I mean, there's just not been a whole lot of action. Um, there's, it's just been kind of quiet. Uh, nothing's really gained traction for Bush. And it's not for lack of trying. I mean, he's been up and down the state talking to people, talking to voters, um, sharing his ideas for what he thinks the attorney general's office should look like. But it just has not caught any traction for whatever reason. I think it's just a point in time where the, the, the Republican electorate might be looking for something different than what he's offering. Um, but he's certainly tried. And, you know, Ken Paxton has not made him any mistakes. He's, he's not agreed to um, 
any debates with with Bush and you know people say like you know that's you know that that may be chicken or or whatever but that is a a, a tool used by incumbents you know it's it's their it's their decision if they want to debate or not right and if if you debate the risk is that you give the other campaign oxygen to get an attack on you and there's a lot of things to attack um Ken Paxton for so he's sort of you know this I sort of think of this matchup as like a a, a boxing match and, and Ken Paxton is like Floyd Mayweather you know he's not the most exciting guy to watch he's just kind of ducking and he's very technical and it's, it's not exciting but he's you know he's executed his he's executed his game plan he's hit you know he's landed the punches that he needs to land uh, especially in the last weeks I think the um, video ad campaigns have really revved up on both sides but I think advantage is still there for for Paxton. James we you know as political reporters you know like races that are, are neck and neck this does not appear to be one of those races but I'm wondering how much does uh, a potential margin of victory matter for Paxton like if he gets north of 60 65 percent of the vote like what does that say about the Republican electorate right now and what their priorities are? Yeah I don't think the I don't think the margin really matters all that much as long as he like gets out of the GOP because then I think if he gets into the general, then that's a, that's a clear win for him. Um, but it does, it, the only reason it matters is it, if it's like super, super tight or if it's like a blowout, right? Because whenever you have a blowout, you can say, wow, that's a mandate from voters to keep doing what I have been doing. If you, if you get, you know, 60 to 40, if you get anywhere north of there, that's, you know, people will take that as a mandate. And, um, you know, it's not out of the question that that happens uh, on Tuesday. Uh, we'll have to wait and see because, you know, the same things we've talked about in the polling. But he's looking pretty confident. He's looking pretty. Um, uh, yeah, he's looking pretty confident that he's he's going to win and win by a by a big margin. But I think the, the, the main significance is if it does get out there, it will reinforce Ken Paxton and his camp's uh, belief that, you know, the things that he's doing, the, you know, uh, AG opinions on uh, transgender child care, the lawsuits against the Biden administration on immigration, on mass mandates, all those things, that those are things that he needs to keep doing. And to be fair, that is what the voters that we have talked to have said. That's that's what they like about him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean I, I would... <laughs> go ahead, Matthew. I was going to say what it, what it would also say to me is where the Republican electorate is right now. I mean, this guy is obviously has a lot of, you know, things that in the past would consider kind of flaws in, in election, you know, challenges. It's not great to be investigated by the FBI, as we might talk a little bit. And as we talk, uh, talk about a congressional race later on, it's it's not great to have your own staff, you know, accusing you of wrongdoing. Um and, you know, it's not great to have your state senior senator call you an embarrassment uh, uh, in the week ahead of the runoff, as, as John Cornyn did um, uh, about Ken Paxton right now. But, I mean, you know, if he wins by a wide margin and, and we think that's a real possibility, I think it tells you that, you know, the, there are a lot of people in the Republican Party who don't really feel that concerned about what establishment figures like John Cornyn, you know, the number two Republican in the Senate. Um, a, a, a leading member of Senate leadership and, and uh, 
says about you. They more want to see you as a fighter for the the, the fight against liberals and Democrats. And and like we said earlier, Ken Paxson has been quite effective in in that um, in that realm for sure. Zach, what are you watching? Anything got your attention on Tuesday night? Yeah, I mean, I, I am quite interested in, like James had mentioned, the outcome in the, the Cuellar Cisneros race. Uh, it seemed to have gotten, you know, pretty negative uh, in the past couple of weeks. And I'm also curious, you know, national uh, Democrats place a lot of stake in this race as sort of a, a proxy battle for the future of their party. Um, but I think in a lot, a lot of ways, they don't consider the politics of South Texas and you know, the importance of keeping that seat rather than, you know, this being viewed as a, a proxy on the progressive versus more moderate member or sort of uh, wings of the Democratic Party. Um, so I, I guess I'm very curious in what takeaways Democrats nationally have in this race and whether that they are appropriate or not. Yeah, you know, I mean, like we said, so bringing up the FBI earlier, Cuellar's office and house raided by the FBI in kind of the early part of this primary race. We have another thing possibly working against him was the what what many see as the uh, impending overturning of Roe v. Wade. Cuellar, uh, famously a, a anti-abortion Democrat. Um, and, and, you know, will that hurt him in the uh, Democratic primary? On the other hand, you know, as, as you mentioned, Zach, South Texas is a more politically conservative area than a lot of Democratic areas, a, a more pro-life area than a lot of Democratic areas. And I think there are a lot of people in the National Party who are worried about a, uh, you know, avowed progressive like Jessica Cisneros coming out and in, in, in not faring as well in the general election. So, so that will be, that will be an interesting race. Zach, I mean, James, what do you, how do you see that race playing out? Uh, the, the CD 28 one. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think we've covered it pretty well. Um, I, I think it is sort of a, a proxy war proxy battle. Um, I think the thing that maybe we need to hit on more is like the FBI investigation and sort of how much mm -hmm. that, but it's, it's hard to sort of figure out um, how much that will impact because of the same reasons of polling. Um, and of course, Henry Cuellar's team, I think his attorney has told some news outlets that, you know, the DOJ told us <laughs> we're not in trouble or anything, but of course <laughs> DOJ, DOJ did not confirm that. Um, um, so that's, you know, what, what's going to happen there. Your point, Matthew, I think is a really, really good one in terms of, and I think Zach hit on this a little bit too, but if you have a progressive, a liberal and, you know, a South Texas race, that's, you know, an area that's a little bit more conservative, um, you know, can, do you win the primary but then set yourself up to lose the general. Um, mm -hmm. I think maybe that's an argument that Henry Cuellar is making as well, um, especially with all the uh, attention that Republicans are paying to South Texas, um, not just in this congressional seat, but also in 15 and 34. It's a concerted effort. So that's another thing to watch. I think, you know, what, what Tuesday's results will mean for November's results. Yeah, for sure. I, um, I, I, I think we will also see some interesting legislative races. You know, we've got the um, Justin Berry race in the Austin area, a police officer who was indicted um, for his 
uh, actions during the George Floyd protests in Austin. You've got the um, younger race, the, the the father of a um, a transgender kid. He, he, the the candidate has has waged a very public battle against his ex-wife in that that race. Uh, I think a lot of people will watch that and be interested if he wins. And then we've got the Democratic races, James, the, the Democratic statewide, you know, Attorney General, um, uh, uh, Comptroller, uh, races like that. Anything anything you're watching in those Democratic statewide seats? Uh, in the Democratic statewide, I think that it's a pretty safe bet. I think that Rochelle Garza, the Brownsville attorney, former ACLU attorney, is going to take that one, although we'll see. Um, but I think the polling that I've seen has shown Rochelle Garza ahead, and that's not changed. Um, the one that's an interesting one is the lieutenant governor race between Mike Collier, uh, who, who had a very close race with Dan Patrick in 2018, and Michelle Beckley, state representative from Carrollton, two-time state representative. Um, she has raised very little money, has done very little campaigning. As opposed to Mike Collier, who basically has been campaigning for the last eight years because he never really stopped after that Dan Patrick loss. Um, and that one is still, you know, it's it's up for grabs, weirdly. He's raised so much more money than she has, has gotten all the endorsements, has been up and down the state. Um, but, you know, and here's the thing about, you know, Democrats and sort of where they are. They're just kind of out in the wilderness and lost. Um, Mike Collier is another older white gentleman, um, as opposed to Michelle Beckley, who is like a, a fiery liberal progressive. Uh, she's a woman. Um, she's got experience in the state house. And I think a lot of times voters say, hmm, maybe it's time to give the woman a shot at this. And I think that's really playing into, into this playing into this uh, race and that that will be an interesting one that I'm sort of watching out for. Um, on the other hand, you set me up perfectly uh, because in the, uh, I was talking about how like there's shifting party loyalties and shifting ideas of what each party is. We talked a little bit about mm -hmm. that in the democratic side with the uh, Henry Cuellar and Jessica Cisneros race, but all the races that you talked about in the state house GOP are the same thing. You know, it's all these like conservative incumbents who the grassroots are saying, you're not conservative enough. You're, you're still not conservative enough, even given the conservative uh, session that we just had with permitless carry passing, um, SB8 on abortion, um, just uh, the, the transgender student athletes uh, bill and, and, and Republican primary voters are still saying that is not enough. You have, I mean, chairwoman Stephanie Click, one of the most conservative um, uh, Republican lawmakers from one of the most conservative areas of the state, and they're saying, you're not conservative enough for us. Um, and that is the same sort of intra-party battle that we're seeing uh, on the Democratic side. I think that speaks a little bit to just where our politics are. Both parties just going to the extremes and saying, like, these people are not, you know, down enough for our causes, so we've got to replace them with people who are. Um, obviously the establishment, the speaker, Dade, Dade Phelan and Governor Greg Abbott are coming hard for, to help out the incumbents. Um, there's grassroots, uh, conservatives, well-funded folks, uh, funded mostly by, um, former Empowered Texans donor, uh, Tim Dunn, um, are coming out hard for the challengers. So, uh, just more sort of that intra-party, uh, warfare, uh, 
will be interesting to see how that shakes out. Yeah, you know, if you're every race is different, every seat is different. But if you are a, you know, if you are a Republican incumbent sitting in office right now facing a challenge from the right, that's just not a great place to be in a runoff because, you know, you tend to see the most kind of activists, the most engaged voters run in those races. And, and I think, you know, those incumbents to varying degrees, I'm sure we'll be, we'll be sweating it out on Tuesday night. It'll be interesting to watch. Right. Okay. Let's, let's pause it here from our sponsors. Lone Star College is an effective workforce partner training tomorrow's employees today. Find out more at lonestar.edu. And the Beer Alliance of Texas. Texas law allows three-tier compliant ordering platforms for home delivery of alcoholic beverages, ensuring safe and quality products for consumers. Learn more at beeralliance.com. Okay, so another thing we want to talk about this week is the Hurricane Harvey aid, which, Zach, you've been tracking for a good considerable amount of time and had an update on this week. You mentioned at the top of your story that ran this week, Coriel County, which is located 220 miles from the Gulf of Mexico and had no homes damaged during the hurricane in 2017. But they are receiving $3.2 million under the plan by General Land Office Commissioner Agriculture or uh, Land Commissioner George P. Bush who, of course, we've talked about earlier here. It's, uh, I guess you you brought that up in your story as a kind of emblem of the frustration that some coastal counties are feeling about the way this Hurricane Harvey aid has been and or is trying to be distributed. Of course, uh, you know, the, the famous kind of rollout about this was the Houston area getting you know, virtually no money in that in that original plan. There have been some kind of updated plans, and and your story talks about how those inequities in the uh, in the original plan kind of still remain. Tell us a little bit about the status of Hurricane Harvey aid right now, and some of the issues that have been raised there. Sure, sure. So, uh, Congress in 2018, after Harvey gave Texas. A little more than four billion dollars in disaster preparedness aid, and you know, sort of where the story starts is uh, Governor Abbott puts Commissioner Bush in the land office in charge of distributing it, and the federal government had initially designated twenty counties as eligible for the money, mostly coastal, uh, mostly hard hit from Harvey. Uh, one of the first things the land office does is they pick. 29 additional counties to make eligible for the money. Uh, these counties are mostly inland. Um, and that decision alone makes it much harder for the coastal counties to get money because the eligibility pool is, is greater and the competition is going to be harder. What you had mentioned about a year ago is uh, GLO had distributed the first billion dollars uh, of the aid. And uh, the results of the competition really like shocked uh, disaster recovery experts and, you know, coastal politicians because uh, it by far disproportionately had shifted money to that inland group of counties rather than the coastal ones that have the highest risk of natural disasters. Uh, you had mentioned Houston had gotten nothing. Uh, neither did Corpus Christi, neither did Port Arthur, or these other places on the coast, um, very, very vulnerable to disasters. Um, and people were shocked. I mean, uh, 
one of the interesting things is uh, flooding is like one of the uh, only issues on the coast that Republicans and Democrats are pissed about this, including Republicans who had, um, you know, su supported uh, Commissioner Bush as, as land commissioner and, of course, had like convinced their constituents to pass the, like a two and a half billion dollar flood bond in Harris County because they're like, hey, if you pass this, like we promise we will help secure additional federal money, including from the pot that George P. Bush was managing. And then this didn't come through. So they were quite pissed. Um, you know, Democrats have been uh, suspicious of, of how the land office has been distributing the aid. Uh, we did an analysis of uh, the populations of the people who live in that group of 20 counties on the coast and then the 29 counties that are inland. And the ones that are inland are significantly whiter and significantly more conservative than the ones on the coast. Mm -hmm. So when this aid initially went um, mostly inland, you know, some Democrats on the coast, including Al Green, one of the congressmen who helped sort of architect uh, this funding, they're like, hey, this, this sounds pretty suspect and sounds like perhaps it could have been, you know, a political move. And I noted in the story that uh, 11 days after Commissioner Bush had announced all of this funding last year, then he announces he's running for attorney general. And of course, like he, he wants to court Republicans in many places and wants to succeed inland. Um, I think he was sort of caught by surprise at how pissed off Houston Republicans are. Um, you know, Harris County is, is a leaning Democratic county, but there are so many like raw number of, Demo of Republicans that live there. So that politically was probably uh, didn't play that well. Uh, he had um, Commissioner Bush uh, said he was going to give of the remaining money 750 million directly to, to Harris County for the future to sort of fix that problem. Didn't really mollify the Democrats who were like, hey, that's still not nearly enough if you look at a per capita measurement. The important part in the, the story that we released this week is, you know, we looked at uh, the land office had come up with a new plan for distributing the rest of the money because the first one didn't didn't go so well. And although the strategy is different, the methods of distributing the money, the remaining uh, couple of billion is different. The result we found is fundamentally the same. On a per capita basis, uh, GLO is going to spend two to four times the amount of money in those inland areas than they are on the coast, even though the state, to their credit, has this wonderful metric where they measure the disaster risk of all 254 counties and they rank them. Uh, the counties on the coast are the ones that rank the top. And some of the counties, um, like Coriel, which I use in, as an example, are, you know, rank anywhere from 70th to like 150th. Um, so that that risk is, is much, much lower. So what is what is Bush's explanation? I mean, you, you cited the kind of political suspicions. I mean, what what is he saying about why this money came out the way it did? So last year, he said that uh, regulations from the federal government and the Biden administration were to blame for it. It's flatly not true. Um, we had read the regulations. They don't dictate uh, handing out the money in that way. He hasn't offered an explanation for, for this new plan. He didn't respond to any of our requests for comment to his campaign, to the land office, and we sent them our analysis and sent them a bunch of questions. Nothing. So, I mean, that's disappointing not to get an explanation there. Um, I mean, my guess is uh, his office would argue, as it has in the past, that uh, inland areas are also important and they have uh, disaster mitigation needs. All those things are true. I mean, I've visited many of these places and they definitely need better infrastructure. There's no doubt about that. Coriel County, I talked with the county judge. He talked about all these low-lying intersections that they have and, you know, it's crumbling infrastructure and they could use some new bridges there. And that's all wonderful. Um, 
the argument here, especially from from Democrats and disaster recovery experts is like on a per person basis, you are not spending the money uh, in the places with the highest risk and, and by any measurement, including the, the metrics that the state uses, the coastal counties are where the money should be going. So HUD has gotten involved in this, the Biden administration, as you noted, and um, there are obviously continues to be frustrations, even with the $750 million that that did get sent Harris County's way. Is there any recourse here? Do they have any hope of getting more money from this? Or is is this kind of, you know, is the, the land office's decision final on this? Yeah, that's the, the $4 billion question. I'm glad that you brought that up. Yeah, so HUD, it's, it's weird. Uh, HUD had uh, found earlier this year that that initial billion dollar disbursement last year discriminated against Black and Latino Texans because it diverted aid away from the cities where uh, those people were most likely to live. Um, but at the same time, uh, HUD also approved Texas's new plan for spending the money, even though our analysis has found like the results on a per capita basis is, is roughly the same. Um, I talked with HUD about this and talked with some experts about this and HUD's approach is, uh, you know, Texas, we're gonna approve your plan, but you know, you're on notice. And if you don't spend the money in the right way, we're gonna come after you after it's all done. Mm. And the <laughs> disaster recovery experts are very frustrated by this because they feel like, and this is not a, you know, Greg Abbott, George P. Bush issue. This has been a historical issue in Texas where the federal government will give us money for things and Texas ignores the guidance or doesn't follow it. And uh, instead of trying to do the enforcement on the front end, and make sure that states, in this case, Texas, spend the money as it is intended by Congress. Um, it is way, way harder to try to claw back money later or take them to court. I mean, HUD has threatened to refer this case to the Department of Justice and it can, you know, wind its way through the legal system. You know, if you are, you know, from the Texas perspective, and I guess the most cynical way of viewing that is, Texas could wait this out. I mean, Republicans could run HUD in, in three years, just as, as they did yeah. three years ago. And this issue all goes away. Um, so I think for the advocates, you know, they, they think, look, Texas has, has done this so many times where they, they sort of like don't follow the spirit, let alone the, the law, letter of the law of what Congress wants. And they face no consequences for it. And if that's been the cat, then the, the past message that the federal government has sent, what incentive does Texas have to act differently, you know, if there's ultimately no consequences for how they don't follow the rules. It seems like it seems like Texas is like the bad kid, and then and then HUD is like the dad being like, "Don't do that again! Don't do that again!" And they just keep doing it. And like from a person who's covered voting rights, and like this is all sounds very familiar. But at least in voting rights, you had like pre-clearance before, where it was like, "Okay, you actually can't do that." But here. And again, uh, uh, a direct tie to voting rights. They they violated the Voting Rights Act every decade uh, since the passing of the Voting Rights Act. And this this sounds very similar to, to that pattern. Yeah, and, and I will say, I think that's a great point, James. Um, you know, eight states got money under the same appropriation from Congress. Texas is the only one to get this finding of discrimination from the federal government. And, and I will say, you know, part of this does fall on, on HUD as the federal agency and as well as Congress itself. And if this has happened enough times, 
you know, Congress controls the purse strings on this and they can control what the rules are for spending it. And they can come up with better rules, even if they have to come with, up with special rules for a state like Texas for spending this money. So at some level, there is an argument to be made that it, you should have learned your lesson by now. Democrats in charge of the federal government. Why don't you have stricter rules for this? Well, I mean, James, you mentioned the Voting Rights Act, but the thing that came to mind while hearing Zach talk about this was the CARES Act money, which, you know, is being used to help the state divert resources to the border for Operation Lone Star. I mean, this is a very similar situation. We've already seen a, uh, well, now we've seen the Treasury Department uh, Inspector General open an inquiry into that, but it's the same type of situation where the money has been spent. And I mean, Zach, we... uh, there's not a lot of examples, right, of, of the federal government actually coming and clawing back money that's already been spent, especially money to that level, um, you know, and that, that was spent on on disaster recovery as well. Yeah, there are. There, there was an example of, uh, I believe it was HUD, who had successfully clawed back some money from the city of Galveston. It was Hurricane Ike recovery. Of course, Ike was in 2008. I think it was like eight years later that they finally cloud back like some portion of the aid and in setting aside like the like logistical nightmare it is to try and claw back money you have distributed like politically it's terribly unpopular yeah, yeah. so like you give in this case in texas like money to inland rural areas who do have a need but perhaps not this one like why would you want to be from the federal government perspective like the big bad guy that comes back and, and takes that money away like why wouldn't you more prudently you know make sure it was spent correctly in the first place. Absolutely. And I, I can just see it now, right? The, um, the, the governor and the attorney general and whoever else saying, you know, the, the, the big bad Biden administration is coming in and trying to take away the, the funds to help you recover from Hurricane Harvey. I you know, could see exactly how that would play out politically and probably a fight that they would be perfectly willing to have, um, you know, from the, from the state uh, elected officials perspective, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you to Zach and James. Thank you to our producer, Justin. And thank you to our sponsors, the Annette Strauss Institute for Civic Life, Texas Biomed, Lone Star College, and the Beer Alliance of Texas. We'll talk to you all next week. The Texas Tribune Festival returns to downtown Austin on September 22nd through the 24th. Get ready to connect with people you know and others you should at our annual celebration of big, bold ideas. Buy tickets by May 31st and save big at tribfest.org.